Okay, we'll get going here, March 11th, and we're at lesson number 20 in our study, study from Matthew. We finished up last week um, with the verses, we looked at verses, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and we stepped into this these scriptures that talk about the great light that has come upon the world that has dawned upon the world. And this scripture is one of those scriptures that's uh, prophetic in its current time, if you, if you can say. And then it has a prophecy application as well later on because when you're talking about this great light from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 that's, that's quoted here in verse 16 of Matthew 4, it's talking about... Uh, uh, release from the captivity during that time. Uh, and uh, they were looking for a change, obviously. They were looking for God to move for the the sentence of judgment which was upon Israel at that time. They were looking for that release. And of course, that, that did come. And many of the prophets of that day talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. But yet it points forward uh, to a time, a greater time in the future when the light would shine and it, it's specific in talking about the advent of the Messiah and uh, that's uh, what has happened, that when Christ, the, our Messiah, entered the earth or came here in his incarnation, of course, we know that a great light did shine and everything changed at that point, particularly when we look at the time of Christ when he was on this earth and we go back and we try to get an idea and really a, a, an accurate idea of what the world was like when Christ began his ministry. And that's where we are now. And we, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to do if, if you don't just really focus on it. But take this, for instance, to just think about a time when literally, wherever Christ was, literally he obliterated illness. He just wiped it out. I mean, and put that in context of the time when you consider that <clears throat> there was not a, <clears throat> I don't remember the exact history on it, but there was not a disease literally diagnosed, I mean, from a medical standpoint until like, what, the 17th or 18th century or something. And here Christ is healing people. Uh, I used to think as a, a young uninformed Christian that he only healed those who had faith to be healed. That's not true. He healed everybody that they brought. And of course, in, that was uh, a testimony of who he was, and it was an affirmation that he was from God. He was the Messiah, as we know. Uh, you'll recall that's how he answered John the Baptist. When John sent his disciples and said, Are you the one, or do we wait for another? He said, Go back and tell John about how the lame walk and the, the blind see, and to the poor the gospel is preached, and so on and so forth because it was understood that these things would testify of Him. He was Christ. He was that great light in a very practical way. Obviously, tangible things, things that you could see, undeniable miracles day in and day out. And as we've said already, and I remind you this morning, there are all kinds of things that He did that we don't know about according to the testimony of Scripture. It doesn't record every single thing. But the people would come to him in throngs. 
We know that many of them came to be fed. We know that some of them came for the show. They came to see something miraculous happen. And we learn further when we get up, say, in the, in the Gospel of John, especially toward chapter 6 and the latter part of chapter 6, when you're looking at that, and Jesus begins kind of laying out the hard line about what it means to be a Christian, that it says there, what is it, 666, that they turned away from Him and no longer walked with Him. After all of that, after seeing and hearing and being exposed to these great miracles, undeniable things, and yet it's becoming a little too costly. And it reminds us, and we keep making the point, that the, the miracles, though they were an at, uh, an, uh, an, a way of attesting to who he was, that was part of it, along with the words that came out of his mouth and so forth, uh, even though those things are there, they're insufficient in and of themselves, apart from the Holy Spirit of God, to move a person to repentant faith. I wish that was sufficient, I guess. We would, you know, people would come and they would see and they would believe. But the Bible doesn't record that that happened all the time. Uh, in fact, it seems to be the exception. Now, people followed him. Great thrones followed him. But as I say, and as John 6 would reveal, when he begins telling them about the cost of discipleship and so forth, laying it out, and they start putting all this together, then, well, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. I guess they said it says that they no longer walk with him. But to be sure, this great light had landed upon the earth. Our Messiah, he was here. And John does the best. John uses the metaphor talking about Christ and the truth of his word, truth, light. You see those words time and time again, even in the, throughout the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You find those terms there. So he does a lot in uh, describing Christ in his presence as a great light. We could go there and look. And we will in a moment, because what I'm going to do this morning, we're just, we're just going to look at this issue about Christ being our great light and the multitude of times in Scripture that it refers to Him as our light, as a light, the light. Luke chapter 2, verse 32 speaks of a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Do you remember who said that? Probably didn't give you enough information. If you, really, if you know the answer to that, you've really been in your, <laughs> in your Bible. But that's Simeon's prophecy. You know, when Mary and Joseph took, took Jesus to the temple to present the sacrifice, you remember Simeon was given through the Holy Spirit. He was given the ability, he was given the assurance that he would be able to see the Lord's Christ. He would be able to see the Messiah before uh, he left this earth, before he died. And, of course, through the Holy Spirit, he was able to identify and recognize him. And he refers to him as a light of revelation to the Gentiles, which is interesting. And that was something, I think, that the people of God, the Hebrew people, Israel, had lost. And forgetting about, even though they were the chosen people of God, that uh, God was to bless Israel in a manner that would be a, a light, a testimony to all nations. And he speaks here of a light and a revelation to the Gentiles. We talked last week about 
the fact that, you know, Christ had been there in Galilee, uh, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember, that was the way it was referred to. And it talked about how his uh, Christ or the love of Christ, of, of the Messiah, was poured out also on the Gentiles. And he chooses those areas initially to make himself known. We talked about that one year period after he had come out of the, the testings, you know, in the wilderness of Judea. And it's just on the verge of beginning this preaching of repentance, which I think we'll start next week looking at that. So Simeon refers to this great light. And then I mentioned John's gospel, and of course your mind should go to, to John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. And it's there a number of places, but in verses 4 and 5, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And this light that's come into the world, which is simply the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is, the truth that magnifies man's need, that helps us open up our eyes in a way that's uh, very, very compelling. It's, it's introspective. It allows us to look deep within when we compare it to the Word of God our need, and we see, we're able to see the literal depth of our need. You know, before that, we know that we're insufficient. We know that we have issues. We know that we have problems, you know. We know that. We know that in many cases, we're not what we're supposed to be, right? But when you shine the light of the gospel on our need, you see it totally different, do you? Can you identify with that? You begin to see the depth, if you will, of our depravity. In other words, it begins moving us in our, in our life, in our spirit, if you will, moving us to a place where we recognize that we're, you know, we're not just in that crowd of people where everybody has problems, everybody fails. Every, we're, we're out of that. We're, we're deeper. We're lower than that. We know we got an issue. And that issue is sin in our life. That issue brings to light, to light the fact that we need a Savior. And the good news of that light is we have a Savior. <laughs> we have one who's wholly sufficient through that great light, that great truth to cover every sin that we've ever committed, every sin that we will ever commit in the future. And God will be, sat will be satisfied with that sacrifice. The light shines in the darkness in verse 5 there in 1 John, he says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A little word study here. You, you go and you read this verse and you see that word translated in English, comprehend. The first thing you might think of, well, the, the darkness did not understand it. Okay, well, that's not what it means. That's not what it says. If you go and look a little deeper, what is this word, catalambano in Greek? But it means to, to take eagerly, to see something, to possess something, or to overtake something. And the, so the message here is that the darkness which existed in the world could not overtake the light. It could not compete with it. It could not damage it or diminish it in any way. You might say that it was powerless against it. Couldn't do anything. And that's, that's an encouragement to us. Because when there's darkness in our life, it, at any level, however it's manifested, just fill in the blank, when it's manifested in our life, 
the light of Christ will overcome that. The light of Christ, the Word of Christ, the truth of Christ can be shined on that issue, whatever it is, and we can see it clearly. We can see it clearly and we can respond to the light of God's Word, God's truth, God's presence in our life. That's, that's the great message. We're never alone. And it's a continual transformation in our life as we respond to that light. In the Gospel of John also, still in the first chapter, you move up to verses 8 and 9 again and he says, <clears throat> he's talking about John, John the Baptist, he says, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And then in verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. There's a testimony, if you will, regarding God's truth that's apparent, that's obvious to everyone. It's apparent. We talk about the things that testify, that represent this life. We know, and we could go back to Romans 1 and other places and look and see that God has given us creation. He's given us conscience. And He's given us Christ or the Word, right? Now, the first two, conscience and creation, are significant in that there is enough information, if you will, there's enough revelation to uh, depict the fact that there is a God, there is a Heavenly Father there. In other words, we see evidence of that when we look about us and we see what God has done, you might say there is a a level of witness and testimony because of the grandeur of it that moves any man or woman to say, oh, there's got to be something somewhere, okay? You know, nowadays they want to look at it and call it what? Uh, Design, what's the word? Uh, Intellect, Intelligent. intelligent design or something, put a name on it. But we look and we just see, believe in the Word of God, we see the hand of God and we know that it testifies as to who He is. And we can look within. You look without, you look within in our conscience. Now, we can, we've, we've had a whole, what do we have? Twelve lessons on the conscience. And we know, quite frankly, we can sear our conscience. Okay, we can put our conscience aside. We can operate against conscience, which the Old Testament says, or the, Old Testament, the New Testament says, don't do that. Remember? That was so important. It said, don't do that and don't lead someone else to do that. Because the conscience does testify from within, about the the reality of God. And those two give you enough information about your need and about who God is. Both of those give you enough information to condemn you. That's what they do. Because people can recognize that. They can recognize in some level, some way, a God because of what they see in creation. They can recognize even within that there's something pulling on their heart and life. It's it's not an emotion. It is a, a reality. It's real. They can recognize that. That's totally different from understanding the third witness, and that is the person of Christ or the Word of Christ and responding to that. Would you not agree there are a lot of people who are in that, that vein? So we look at that. And we understand the necessity of of responding to the light, the light of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is. 
the truth of who he is. So John there speaks of the light, and the word that's used there, fotizo, means to shine and to shine bright. It means to illuminate so that someone can see. This is why, of course, he chose the metaphor there, and they understood exactly what he was talking about. We all want to be able to see our way clearly. John chapter 3, as we move up, verses 19 through 21, he continues talking there. He says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why did they do that? Why did men love darkness rather than light? Knowing full well, even though love of the darkness can bring some pleasure, you know, some temporary joy, they know that. But they love the darkness rather than the light. Well, I didn't finish that verse purposely because it says, it tells us why at the end there, verse 19, it says, for their deeds were evil. That's why they don't love the light. That's why they embrace darkness because to embrace the light is to admit that there's an issue because the light, remember, overpowers the darkness. It's going to shed, shed, it, shed itself, shed light on the situation so that it can be seen clearly. And the way most people respond to that without exception is what? How's that? When the light of truth is shined upon their, their life. Yeah, yeah. It's only it's it's only a person who loves the Word of God, who loves the presence of God, who knows that and believes that. Look, anything he does in your life that comes off as chastisement is because he loves and cares for you, and we nuzzle up to that because we know that on the other side of that, hey, it's 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 peaceful, right? That's what Hebrews tells us. It's necessary. But they love their dark deeds rather than the light. Would you agree to come to Christ and to come to Him fully is to welcome the light. It's to come with nothing. It's to say, shine, shine the light of your truth on my life and I will respond. Because now we understand grace. Now we understand God's love for us. And we can respond to that and not be afraid. We can't, we're not going to be afraid of what we might lose or have to give up by acknowledging what the light of God, having been shined upon our life, has revealed. That's what we want. You know what? That's, that's a desire to be Christ-like. That's what that is. And in a nutshell, that is... That is the mission of the church within itself. Yes, I understand we're to bring honor and glory to God. But I tell you, the way we do that first and foremost is through embracing the person, the light of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the person of Christ and becoming Christ-like in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, in the way that we plan out our lives and use our resources. It is because of the power of this light, this truth that's in our life. That's how we respond. 
John goes on in verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's exactly what we just got through talking about. You can apply this in the simplest of ways. You can apply this when, when you and your spouse disagree on an issue. Let's just go there, okay? Because it happens, doesn't it? When you disagree <laughs> on an issue, if you can have the discipline, and if, it, if, it's, if the desire is something that just oozes up out of you and, you and you realize, hey, you see it this way, I see it this way, what does the Word of God say about this issue? And I'm saying as a matter of discipline, you just have to be willing to go there. And you may know right off the bat what the Word of God says. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have to look. Sometimes it might drive you, if you will, to prayer over the issue. And in that, in that very situation, you're, you're coming together. But you're not seeking your own. You're seeking God's will. You're seeking God's way. That is amazing. Nothing brings peace and direction in life. Nothing brings peace and direction in a marriage like the light of God's Word. Nothing. Look no further. Okay? Look no further. And it does it without fail. That's what I love to. It's the real deal, as we say. In verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light. In other words, that's, that's the person's nature. We might say their new nature in Christ. They come to the light so that their deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. We, we, I like to think in terms of being in the center of God's will, right? That's what I like to think about. And that means for the most part, it means resting in the truth of God's Word. doesn't necessarily mean you see and understand everything, every direction, every answer. You may not, but it's settled that you're... You're in the center of His will. You're, you're willing and ready to accept whatever He brings, to do whatever He requires, to trust Him. That's how your relationship with the person of Christ is built. That's how it grows. Never fails in that response. And of course, <clears throat> you see John here, as it's translated using this word practice, that's a very important word when you go to 1 John and you begin reading there. He uses this word over and over. <clears throat> it's the word praso in the Greek, and it means to perform something repeatedly, to, pre- to perform something in a habitual way. And that becomes, of course, interesting when you look at 1 John. He talks about, you know, if, if you sin after this, well, yeah, we all sin. Ooh, I'm in trouble. Well, you've got to look and see what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who sins, as it says, using this word prasso, using or, or sins in a, in a manner that's constantly a repetition. But it speaks of a desire, a habit, what you want to do. It's your manner of life, as we say, that's characteristic of the person's true state. And you'd have to, if you're in First John, we can't go there now, but I don't, I don't want to just leave you hanging there, you know, are you, are you struggling with the sin? Are you repentant over it? Are you dealing with breaking away from that sin, trusting what God has done? Is that your desire, even though it might be a difficulty? Pick a sin. It doesn't have to be 
you know, something like sexual lust or anything like that. It could be anything. It could be gossip. I just can't keep my mouth shut. I just can't not give my opinion about an issue when I know I shouldn't do it. It's speculative. It doesn't represent uh, the best intentions of my heart towards someone else. That's gossip. It's very dangerous. Very dangerous thing. Well, is that something we struggle at? Do we call it what it is? Do we deal with it according to God's Word? Or do we just keep that? Do we just continually embrace that? That's who we are. That's a problem, and it indicates a problem. John eight twelve says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A great promise here from Christ. And this is something that's stated in the imperative, if you will. Because Jesus says, first off, frankly, that He, that is, He and He alone is the light of the world, the light in the world, and that He who follows me, listen, will not walk in darkness. Does that mean we never sin? We never have an issue? We never misspeak? Right? We're never reckless with our words? We're never faithless? It doesn't mean that. It talks again about manner of life. We will not walk in darkness, but we have the light of life. He has promised this. We have the answers. We have the light of God shining all around us to give us direction in every area, every aspect of our life. The question is, is that what we want? Do we embrace that? Do we embrace it as the truth? Do we embrace it as God's will for us? And he says here plainly that when we walk with him, we will have this light, this truth surrounding us. There are a multitude of verses you could go to if you want to write them down. I won't go there now. Isaiah 42, 6, 49-6, 60-19-20. He talks about the Messiah being our light being a light to the nations, even then, even hundreds of years prior. And then in John 9, 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> Jesus is not saying, and when I leave, there's no more light. He's not saying that. <clears throat> but He's simply reminding them, particularly the Jews that look, <laughs> I'm here. Your Messiah is here. What I'm telling you is the truth I guess he might say, you gotta, you got to get over the fact that I'm not exactly what you were looking for, what you were expecting, that I haven't thrown the Romans out on their head, and I haven't ushered in you know, a pure Israel to dominate the known world. I haven't done that. And if you understand the light and the Word of God, you know that that's not what's supposed to happen. I hope to bring a message on oh, is it April the 8th, that will kind of help us see that and make that clear. People had no reason uh, to, to miss Messiah. They had no reason. Jesus will tell them, says, didn't you understand that He had to suffer? Messiah, he had to suffer that the Old Testament talked about that? They don't want to hear that. How many times do you and I just hear what we want to hear? 
And I think you have to do that with the Word of God sometimes. Maybe, maybe all the time. Well, yeah, just what is it saying plainly? What does it want me to do? How, does, how am I supposed to change, if you will? Is it not going to change us when I understand the clear Word of Scripture? Jesus says, I am the light of the world as long as I'm here. You know, He said this just before healing the man who was born blind, the one He sent off to the pool of Shalom to wash his eyes. And he validates his words again with a great miracle there. I like that one because the Jews finally agreed. They said, okay, you did it. You made them. We know this guy. He's been blind since, but we know who he is. Some of them tried to debunk that and said, no, wait a minute. I think maybe he just looks like that guy. If you go back. No, that was him. He's been blind. They bring his parents. You know, they talk to everybody. Now, and they finally say, okay, you did it. But give glory to God as if to say, He wasn't giving glory to God. Later they would go further. In fact, they they already have at that point. Accused him of doing what he's doing through the power of the devil. Just missing it. It's plain as day. He, He did it right in front of you. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. The light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So Jesus talks about his influence. He talks about his words as light, that which is giving the way. And he just simply encourages these people to hear what he's saying and do what he's saying. Do it. And then he says in different places, if you do that, it it testifies to the fact that you do believe. In other words, he would say, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you truly love him, you will keep his commandments. John 14, go read it. Well, I marked here to read from John 12. Let me pull over. John chapter 12, beginning, let's see, beginning with verse 20, where Christ is teaching. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overcome, will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may come son, become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And I read that passage to bring us to the point where we can, we can look at this and we can make this comparison because it highlights, I'll call it this, this battle that goes on. These people had the light of the gospel. They had Messiah standing in front of them. And you remember from Isaiah's testimony to look at Jesus. You'd pass him by on the road. There was nothing about him. It wasn't that he stood head and shoulders above everybody else like Saul. You know, that not, that's not what qualified him. Clearly, it's when he spoke. And they have him preaching and teaching like no one else. The perfect preacher, if you will. Perfect in his timing. Perfect in his inflection. Perfect in his knowledge of the Old Testament. Perfect in his application. And yet, what is missing? Why do they just not flock? What happens? What's keeping them back? Why can't they put two and two together here? And it does go to his sovereignty, does it not? But we know that we're responsible. We're responsible for our volitional will, if you will, as it's explained when we look at at salvation. We're responsible. So what's going on? What's the battle about? It's just as he says. You love darkness. Think about that. Now you say, wait a minute. I don't love darkness in any way. And even as a Christian, there's nothing in my life that can be described accurately as me loving darkness. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it it only has to be a little sin. Just a little one. Yeah. As one preacher wrote, I think I can quote this, he says, there's more... There's more evil. I heard MacArthur quote this once from a letter written back when, in England when pastors were being persecuted and were having to leave. He said, uh, there's more evil in the slightest sin than in the greatest calamity. The calamity of that time being that all these families and preachers were uprooted and literally having to leave their country in the name of religious freedom. A great tragedy. But he said, in hindsight, 
as a preacher of the gospel, that there's more, reminding his people, there's more evil in the slightest sin than in the greatest calamity. Listen, don't forget that sin, if you want to look at it this way, costs the life of Christ on my behalf and on your behalf for everyone who would ever believe. It's not a small thing. And the truth is, because of the light of the gospel, which includes not just the light that shows us the error of our ways, the the condemnation that's upon upon us if we're in sin, unrepentant sin, not just that, but the blessed grace that follows, that when we do, when we do respond to Him in faith and repentance, that there is sufficient grace to cover every sin. Christ told the people who were there listening to Him, He says, look, walk in the light. Okay, I'm not going to be here forever. The light's going to remain. He would talk about that later. He would talk about the truth of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit later to encourage us. But how important is it to move and to act upon the light that we have in John 12:46 I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Mike, one yeah. thing that strikes me um, just reviewing all this light this yeah. about the light is you know it talks about like you said tell people hate the light and love the darkness. Yeah. Um, which makes it seem as though they have they they're aware of that the deeds are evil. They're aware that they they that what they're doing is wrong. They just don't want you to get it acknowledged. Yeah, so they it's want, true. They want to walk, 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 you know, wallow in the darkness and stay there in comfort with all the other people in the darkness. Yeah. So it's not as though they're ignorant that they're doing. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the scripture comes to mind is to put, to support what you're saying, and really to take it a step further is Romans one when he talks about those who do those things. He says not only do those things, but have joy, you know, or pleasure in others who do those things, you know, which speaks of wanting affirmation from other people, wanting to be in the crowd, if you will, wanting to be acknowledged, in this case, for the wrong reasons. It feeds something in self, okay, and that's what has to be overcome. Yeah, it's not like they're totally ignorant of it. Now, there are people who are, as it would say, blinded. They've developed a system, if you will, of acceptability before God, something they've come up with. It's always based upon merit, all right, always. That happens, and they write it it off in that fashion. And I find that in in witnessing to people or sharing with people who are stuck in that, they're very worldly, they're very focused upon usually materialism and, and recognition, those kinds of things. Those things are very important to them. And they can turn that around in some way thinking that it serves God. They really can. The Jews had done the same thing. They had done the same thing. It also speaks to our guilt that we like because if you're in the light, well, then your guilt is exposed, your sin is exposed. And so we don't like to, so in the darkness, darkness, well, then we're not in a place where our sin is exposed. So then we don't feel guilty. Right. Which is why, you know, birds and feathers flock together because if you are loving your sin, 
if someone points that out, what is going to cause you to feel guilty if you don't like to feel guilty so they run and hide from yeah. And so, but as believers, we come, we want our, we want the, right. our sin, which causes the guilt, to be exposed so that we can confess that and repent of that. True enough. That's it in a nutshell. And, and for a person who truly lives in that light that you just shared, that's a safe place to be. It's, it's hard to get somebody to make that change, you know? They got to give up so much. When I, um, I was talking to one of Sanisha in, in Croatia, um, you know, a couple years ago, was one, one of the people that we witnessed to regularly, who serves regularly, at the Bible camp in Croatia, in Croatia. yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the Cro- one of the locals, um, and he's you know a fun guy, and everybody's witness to him. But one time I had an opportunity to just talk to him in the morning before, and we, we talked about the light here, but it, it and you know Christ shining a light in our hearts so we can see our own sin. But we, God has made us so that we we don't even meet our own standards. We don't even meet our we are enough aware of what's right and wrong in our own selves, and we realize we don't even need that. And so, and that's part of the loving the darkness. They already know that they're, even, they're not as good as they they hold them own selves up to, yeah. much less what Christ yeah. has for us. That's true. One of the things that I I believe is a, a, a big impact uh, upon our world, and I'm talking about here in our culture, is the uh, is how affluent people are if they're not careful because the Bible's clear that if, you know, if there's nothing, whether it's affluence or not, if there's nothing in your life that kind of moves you toward need or causes you to recognize your need, that's why he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter. It's not because the rich can't get in because he can. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's just saying we, we have to have something to make us stop and think ultimately it's the spirit of god moving upon us calling our heart impressing upon us our great need ultimately that's it but you take somebody who ha- who sees themselves as having no need before long that gets translated into i have no sin i don't need a savior everything's cool i'm comfortable where i'm at you know until they discover they have a, a life-threatening disease or the economy falls out and they lose all the things, you know, that are their things, I'll just say. That happens. And we have, we have a lot of that, okay? You know, so it's like you go to these countries where it's costly to be a Christian. It may cost you economically. It may cost you socially. It could cost you your life. You don't have to really worry about whether or not the, the persons who have associated themselves with the church are genuine or not. Okay, they've already, they've already worked through that, all right? So, anyway, that's what we're looking at. God, shine your light upon our lives. Give me a couple more minutes and I'll wind it up here. Well, Ephesians 5, 8 and 10, he speaks of those. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And I like this, and I pick this one because it's not just that you have the light around you. You are the light. Remember that. We are the light. You hear me say it often. We're the light. We're the salt. He says, walk as children of light. Show it. Demonstrate it. Live your life in the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This is our life pursuit. Paul says to the Ephesian church, he puts it in that frame. You're trying to learn. You're just continually learning what is pleasing to the Lord. Your life now belongs to Him. Do not participate, he says in verse 11, in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what we are to do. And that's, that's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the church in part within the church. And that's the mission of the church certainly outside is don't just be the light. You know, sometimes, you know, through God's grace and leading and provision, we expose the darkness. We call it what it is. That's what we do. Regardless of the cost. Somebody has to. And if it's not going to be the people of Christ in the world, who's it going to be? We need to give some attention perhaps to how we do that. We want our timing to be that of the Holy Spirit. We want our, our speech to be seasoned with salt. Again, in Ephesians also, was it 4.15? We want to do it in love. We want to speak these great truths. We want to shed this great light in love. And by that it means it's, it, it's, it's uh, identifiable. It's not just, well, well, I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. It's more than that. It's, it's, it's perceived in the tone, in the eyes, okay? We know something about your sin that you don't know. And that is that it's going to cost you one day. It is, there is a payday. And we also know that there's a life far beyond a life of being dominated by sin that's just so far greater than anything, talking to a lost person, so far greater than anything that you could conceive. In fact, it's really what you want. You want peace of mind. and You want confidence. You want assurance. You want to know that you're not alone, that you're taken care of. You want to know that you're not subject to the whims that this world brings upon you, whether it has to do with opportunities or relationships or whatever, that there is a bigger picture. And it's not out of control. In fact, it's... In amazing control. In this verse, he speaks of goodness, which is moral excellence of heart. That's what he's talking about. That represents that continual transformation in our heart. A moral excellence of heart. Our desire is to follow Christ. To do it His way. It speaks of righteousness, and it means specifically righteous behavior. Acts of righteousness. Things that can be seen in our life that testify to the fact that we're different, as the Bible says of those who took notice that they had been with Jesus. It's obvious. It's evident. And then the truth, of course, that he refers to here is just about honesty and integrity. These are the things that should dominate our life. 1 Timothy 6.16, he speaks of him who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Two more verses. Paul In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light.
And then lastly from 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. I said that was the last one. I do have one more from the Revelation that I'm through. Revelation 22.5 And there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever with Him. One of these days... We're going to rest, we're going to reign, rule, that's what the Bible says, exist, talking about the eternal state around this brilliant, brilliant presence that's described as the light of God Himself, His presence. It's so sufficient, so bright, if you will, there's no need for uh, a manufactured light to see your way because He lightens our way. He illumines us. We have that today. We have that in His Word. We have that through His indwelling presence, through the Holy Spirit. We are definitely among those of whom the Word says, and I trust the Holy Spirit says to us this morning, that we are without excuse. We got it all. Okay? So let's focus on our expression toward Him and our desire to live in that life.